Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. I rode the bus home with them. That was my first party ever. And uh, so we went to the white section of town that, that us as kids had heard stories about. Right. And I'm sure they understood that we lived too. That's just how it was. Yeah. So we all got off the bus and all my friends disappeared. And so here I am in, uh, excuse my, my jokes, but it's how I am. I was in no black man's land. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm here and, you know, with pickup trucks and rebel flags and, oh boy. you know, the whole shebang. Um, had no idea how to get home. So I pushed away my panic and I remembered my landmarks from taking the bus from school, school to home and vice versa. So I took all the main roads and expressway and I walked home. And uh, I was supposed to be home by six. I got home by 6.30. So I look back on it now. So that was a three and a half hour walk uh, across the city of Tampa. So I get home and my aunt at the door and she said, go back where you come from. Hmm. Slam the door in my face and that was the beginning of me being on my own. So I tried to go to school for a while, you know, high school and I kept myself clean through the, my grandmother's old house that I could still had a key to. And so I'd wash up in the sink and things of that nature. We call it a sink bath as kids. And uh, I'd read by candlelight and should have do my school work. Plus try to maintain myself and um, try to forage for food. But it comes, then it comes to a point where you're trying to survive and go to school. You can't do both at the same time. Where do you begin moving beyond a crucible like that? 16 years old, homeless, family relationships strained, unable to envision a future for yourself because your circumstances make it difficult to envision dinner or a shower for yourself. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. Today's guest, Gregory Robinson, did find a way to craft a life of significance from the ashes of that experience and other crucibles that knocked him off his feet in the years that followed, from juvenile detention to the horrors of war that left him with PTSD. As he tells Warwick, his road back was paved with refusing to let defeat defeat him and turning to God when there was nowhere else for him to turn. It's a message and a hope he shares with men today through his podcast, The Unbreakable Man, which he started to help others who've been through pain like he has find joy. Well, Greg, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And Look forward to hearing about your story, and um, you're in the Chicago area. Yes, sir. But Midwest, under- the right? Midwest rules. <laughs> well, my wife has a lot of family in uh, in the Chicago area, so um, yeah, we actually lived there at one point, but before we moved to Maryland. So um, yeah, I just want to before we get into all of your story, just a little hear a little bit about your background and. Grown up in Tampa, and um, you know, it wasn't the easiest one. You had some challenges. So, talk about some of your early childhood experiences and crucibles, and a bit about your parents, and just about mm-hmm. your that kind of the early story, which you know, early stories. Okay, well, obviously, as you said before, I'm from Tampa, Florida. It's my hometown, home of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Super Bowl champions. <laughs> How do you decide who to cheer for, the, the Buccaneers or the Bears? How do you decide? Um, well, I lived here long enough to where I root for them both. But we used okay. to have, my wife and I a joke, when they were in the same conference and they played together, that we would draw an imaginary line down the house. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But no, uh, growing up in Tampa was uh, very tough. My hometown, obviously, I love it, despite of all the things that went on during my life. But I come from uh, an alcoholic family. Uh, my mother and father were very, they grew up in the segregated South and very old-fashioned way people did business. The family story goes that my mother became pregnant in high school during her senior year. And uh, my father was from the other side of town, the other side of the track, but within the Black community. 
So uh, my father's parents already had him slotted to marry someone else who was from his part of town. So they didn't marry, but the family agreed to pay a stipend to my mother's family to take care of me. That was the agreement. I didn't learn this until many, many, many years later, the whole story of how that all went about. But one of the things that I can say about my story, at least in that aspect, is I was 15 years old going on 16, two weeks from my 16th birthday. And I was at a little corner store not far from my house. And the local beer truck driver walks into the store and he walks up to me and he says, are you Greg Robinson? I'm like, yeah, who are you? Well, I won't tell you what I said. I was 16 years old. And- <laughs> we can imagine. Right. Thank you. <laughs> and he says, I'm your father. Now, this isn't a, a Star Wars, you know, tie-in. Right. Right. <laughs> right. I looked at the store owner who was like family as well because it was a neighborhood place. And I asked him and he said, yeah. He said, yeah, Greg, that's your dad. So the realization hit me that this man who I had seen for as long as I can remember, who had a beer route in my neighborhood, was my father. And so my first football game that I went to was two weeks later with to see the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with my dad. Mm. I mean, you, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> right. I mean, that must have been surreal. You're 16 years old and you find out who your father was even though you'd seen him around the neighborhood. And um, yeah. I mean, do you ever have a conversation with him? It's like, because when you're young, you don't get a lot of stuff. It's like, what's up with somehow your your family was, felt like they, you know, my mom wasn't good enough for you. And what, I mean, it's like, it's hard to get your head around, you know, I mean, his, I can't think of a diplomatic way to say this, his driving a beer truck is not like, okay, so what makes you better than my mom's side? I mean, all yes. those thoughts must, as a 16 year old, must yes. be going, yes. I don't get this. You're right, it was surreal, but I learned a lot about my dad over time. And he was a Vietnam vet. Mm-hmm. So not long after I was born, he got drafted. He left college to go to the army. He was army airborne. Came back home, had a lot of issues with PTSD. At that time, they called it battle fatigue and combat stress and all the different names they come come up with you know, over the decades. And I had met him once or twice, but I was too young to really remember what he looked like. So as the family story goes, he told me much later is that when he came back from Vietnam and he was married, obviously he took a job with Budweiser and purposely took a route that was in my neighborhood so he could watch me grow up. Mm. Hmm. So with that said, I learned to have a lot of respect for him because he, to me, in my eyes, despite of all the bad things that happened, he was a man of great integrity and he was honorable in what he did. Huh. He later ended up divorcing the first wife. and um, But he and my mother never got together. The drinking got the better of her. And so then what I developed over time, not until I was in my late 20s, early 30s, was compassion for them both because then I understood why my mother was the way she was when I was younger. But when you're growing up in a horrid situation, <laughs> for lack of a better word, well, you know all the hole, hole in the walls, if you guys know what a hole in the wall is, yeah. uh, and the joints and a little side hustle stand, people would sell liquor out of their garages as a makeshift bar, mm-hmm. and that becomes your normal. And then, you know, you have brothers and sisters like I did, and so I was the oldest, so I took up the mantle of being a surrogate father and my mother wasn't around, and then, you know, defending them against the, you know, quote unquote, Mister So and So or or Mister This, the boyfriends, mm-hmm. and things of that nature. So I was the one who took my brother and sister to school, taught them how to fight and fend off the bullies, and who cooked and made sure they were clean and all those mm-hmm. things uh, for many years. And then um, as I went on, I was given over to my grandmother as my guardian when I was about eight or nine years old, roughly, I think it was. And my mother asked my grandmother to keep me until she came back. Well, she never came back, but I would see her on and off. So yeah, life was tough, but I made it. Um, I did fairly well in school. I was very artistic, a very good illustrator. My escape were books. Hmm. I was an avid reader, um, loved science fantasy, science fiction, 
and nonfiction and history and learning about cultures and different places. And so what that allowed for me, looking back in hindsight, is develop is to develop a broad mind despite of my situation and where I was at. Um, so you didn't have to deal with all the other stuff. I know that Warwick's going to ask some more detailed questions about much of what you've just described, because you've sketched a, a, in broad brushstrokes what you went through. But one thing I always like to do, and it doesn't happen all the time on the show, but when it does, I want to point it out for listeners, especially listeners who aren't viewing it on video, as we're seeing it right now as we're talking to you. But those things that you just described, Greg... So many times as you were describing very traumatic things that happened to you, you smiled. You have the perspective now as an adult who's processed those things, you smiled. And I just point that out to the listeners so that they can know. I mean, we talked at the outset about we are at uh, Beyond the Crucible. We try to be in the hope business and offering hope to people. And as people are struggling right now, listening to this in their own crucibles, which probably are wildly different than yours and wildly different than Warwick's, there's something beautiful about the fact that as you tell those stories, there's a smile on your face because you're on the other side of them. And that smile is available to all of us if we process uh, the lessons of our crucibles and we do the things that you've done, like forgive and learn and move on. So I just wanted to, to point that out in case listeners didn't hear it in his voice. Greg is, I mean, right now, he is smiling. He's got a beautiful smile. He is smiling right now, even as he talks about those things. So. I know there's more to talk about as we unpack more of those details, but I wanted to get that point across because that's what we're hoping for to encourage people. Uh, there is hope on the other side of your crucible. Yeah, I mean, that's well said. I mean, I just, to your point, Gary, as Greg is talking, you just sense the sense of uh, peace, sense of calm, sense of forgiveness, as I'm sure we'll get into more later, the phrase, the peace that passes you know, understanding comes to mind, which... Um, yeah, so just to flesh a bit more of this out, obviously, I got to imagine it was very tough for your mother. I mean, being rejected by your dad's family, and I don't know, it probably contributed to some of her challenges. I mean, do you felt like she was never, the, maybe that's an obvious question, but she was never the same kind of after that, after feeling rejected? That might have been not the sole cause of her issues, but was that part a big part of it? I would definitely say so. But at the time, like I said, I was young and it took me many years to come to grips and get past my own anger and other mm -hmm. things that I had developed over time by feeling rejected myself. But I will tell you this story. Uh, the kind I'm going to jump forward probably about 15 years or so. But I think it's really relevant. I left and went into the military after I went to Job Corps around 18 or so. So I was gone for more or less about eight years. You know, and had developed on my own. I was always my own man. There was no one to tell me what I could and couldn't do besides the military, of course. But there was no mom or dad to say, well, no, here you should go. Here's son or do this. And um, I was visiting home uh, one particular time right before my dad had passed away. I was probably about 31, I think, at the time. And um, we were talking. And I was he and I and my uncle, I should point this out, I come from a family of veterans. So my dad was Army Airborne in Vietnam. My uncle, John, and my dad's brother were the Airborne Ranger, who mm -hmm. was the younger of the two, and he followed my dad to Vietnam. And then there's me, who's another veteran and a combat veteran, mm -hmm. who was in the Navy, the corpsman attached to the Marine Corps Infantry. So we're all together. And we're talking, and I'm about to go away again for the weekend, because I'd visit like every other weekend during the month. And my dad, uh, he says, hey, son. I said, yes, sir, pops. He says, I love you, son. I turned, I looked at him because he was very old fashioned. He, I'm sure mm -hmm. you guys know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I went up to him and I hugged him and my uncle hugged us too. And I said, I love you too, dad. And so I stopped. I said, your dad, I said, you know what? I says, um, you know, I got a place up in Northern Florida. And uh, how about I get you to come on up, you know, for Christmas this year? Mm -hmm. It would have been our first Christmas together. And I said, by the way, you know, I could bring mom up too. And so huh. he just kind of looked at me and he kind of smiles and he giggles because he knew exactly <laughs> what I was up to. 
but it was worthwhile to see the smile on his face and understanding because she was his long lost love and vice versa. So I was hoping to make some mending in the process, but he passed away before it could all transpire. Uh, I mean, that's so sad. I mean, it's as you're talking, there's a lot of things you could be bitter about, about what happened to your mother after that, your dad's family. You know, when you're a young guy like your dad, I mean, it's tough to buck your whole family and they're telling you what to do. I mean, it's not easy as a young person, but that's just so sad. Why? I mean, you can't help but think what might have been if people had yes. kind of left him alone. Maybe they wouldn't have made it, but maybe they would have made it. Do you find yourself in the what ifs? What would have happened if they people kept messing around? Actually, not anymore. I'm, um, despite of how hard it may have been, I'm very thankful, as odd as it may sound, that I went through all the things that I went through because I believe it made it helped to mold me and to make me into the man that I am today. They have the strength to be able to like to sit before you and, and Gary and talk about things like this and to be able to look back introspectively and say, well, hey, you know, despite of everything that has happened in my life, I'm still here. And I'm happy, and I say that genuinely. I'm pretty much at peace. You know, we all still have our things that we mm-hmm. we go through, but overall, I'm happy. I got a great wife. I've got great kids. I absolutely love what I do. And now, despite of me being re- reticent about even writing the book initially, and the only reason I wrote the book, the people had talked to me about it for years, was I was actually inspired by God to write the book. And He said, "Here, you need to write this, son." And I was like, well, <laughs> and he said, no, you need to write it. So what does the scripture say? Obedience is better than sacrifice. So I obey. It's like I haven't been in the military, but I imagine when your superior in the military says, Greg, you need to do this. You go, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. You don't. Not a whole lot of debate, right? Well, it's similar with God, right? If God tells you to do something, the answer is, uh, yes, sir. <laughs> Let's go, right? <laughs> But um, just before we get to what you're doing now and uh, some of your experiences in Navy Corpsman, from what I understand, there was, uh, after things weren't working too well at home with your mom, you spent some time with your grandmother. But yes, at, at age yes, 16, sir. it sounds like there was a time where... For, Approximately about eight or nine until I was uh, right at 16 years old. And this goes in talking about uh, racism to a point and uh, how the old South was because I had got invited to, cause I was the first one in my family to go to integrated schools. Hmm. So my grandmothers on both sides were just like uh, in the movie that made a few years ago that came out. That mm-hmm. was my grandmother on both sides. Wow. And I think a side note that's very important in regard to that. I remember my grandmother on my father, no, I'm sorry. My mother's side worked for an old Jewish family. On the other side of town, on Bayshore Boulevard in Tampa. That's just how it was. And uh, when she would work, when I was younger, she would take me to uh, their house sometime during the summertime when I was out of school. And I'd play with their son, who was a friend who became a friend of mine. And I'd gotten to be about 10 years old or so and started learning some things and understanding because you got to remember I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And so, you know, this was at the end point somewhat of the civil rights movement. And my grandmother stopped, I think it was Christmas Eve or a couple of days before Christmas. And we picked up all these toys and these clothes and they're all hand-me-downs. And I was at the age where I had a little knowledge. And I looked at everything and I told my grandmother, I says, I don't want these little white boys hand-me-down things. Mm. And she turned around and she looked at me and she slapped me across the face. And she had tears in her eyes and she says, don't you ever say anything like that again. He said, because you have no idea. And that's just how she left it. And as I got much older, I really understood where she was coming from because she was like, look, these people have a good heart. They're doing something for me or for you because they love me and vice versa. And then here you have the audacity to be an ungrateful I'm using my own words in that in that sense. Hmm. That's really what it comes down to. And 
you have the nerve to be arrogant when you don't understand the full concept of what's going on here. Hmm. And so I took that as a big lesson and I never forgot it as the kind of woman that she was. And so, you know, the whole family was blue collar. Uh, My my other uncle was a high school dropout. He started working construction at the age of 15 and built his own business and was a contractor by the age of 30. Hmm. So, I mean, yeah, a lot of hard times, but a lot of hard lessons too at the same time. Mm. But the, the couple of years before you get into the job corps and Navy, maybe somewhere around 18, from 16 to 18, those was those some of the toughest years? Yeah, I would say 16 to 18 were the toughest. It's like everything, it was like building a pyramid. Right. <laughs> you start with a very strong foundation. Right. Just horrid things and you just, you pinnacle out to a point. And uh, during that time, I was on my own. I dropped out of school because I got kicked out of the house, going back to my previous story. Some friends of mine from school, uh, I rode the bus home with them. That was my first party ever. And uh, so we went to the white section of town that that us as kids had heard stories about. I'm sure they understood where we lived too. That's just how it was. Yeah. So we all got off the bus and all my friends disappeared. And so here I am in, uh, excuse my, my jokes, but it's how I am. I was in no black man's land. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm here and, you know, with pickup trucks and rebel flags and, oh boy. you know, the whole shebang. Um, had no idea how to get home. So I pushed away my panic and I remembered my landmarks from taking the bus from school, school to home and vice versa. So I took all the main roads and expressway and I walked home. And uh, I was supposed to be home by six. I got home by six thirty. So I look back on it now. So that was a three and a half hour walk uh, across the city of Tampa. So I get home and my aunt at the door and she said, "Go back where you come from." Hmm. Slam the door in my face, and that was the beginning of me being on my own. So I tried to go to school for a while, you know, high school, and I kept myself clean through the my grandmother's old house that I could still had a key to and. So I'd wash up in the sink and things of that nature. We call it a sink bath as kids. And uh, I'd read by candlelight and try to do my schoolwork, plus try to maintain myself and um, try to forage for food. But it comes then it comes to a point where you're trying to survive and go to school. You can't do both at the same time, at least during my time frame. It's not like now where you have all sorts of programs and agencies that will reach out to help. You're just a young kid and you're just out there. So I I, uh, I got involved with a, a family of uh, con men uh, who kind of took me in, and so at least I had a semi you know semi roof over my head, and um, I hustled pool and just all sorts of things I did um, just to make ends meet. So what I learned in my salvation about things like that, you have to meet a person at their need. You can't just come to them with the Bible and talk about you know Jesus loves you and everything will be fine. Well, he's like, well, right now I'm hungry. Or right now I need a warm bed. Or right now I need a drink of water. Or right now I need three bucks to get, you know, downtown so I can get to the food pantry so I can catch the bus. Hmm. And so that's where I was at. So my saving grace during that time frame, after being on the streets for two, almost two years, is I got arrested by a store detective in a, a store called Zares that doesn't even exist anymore. I remember Zares. Yeah. Mid, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I stole a half t-shirt, a half that of the Cincinnati Reds sports team. Don't even like the Cincinnati Reds. <laughs> but I needed a clean shirt. <laughs> so uh, the detective arrested me and, uh, and I had some social security card I'd found on the street someplace that I would use my alias. You know, that's just how it was. So he pulls up the guy's records and he had a, he had a rap sheet as long as both of my arms combined. He says, are you sure you're this guy? No, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, they, they actually sent, they put me in juvenile detention. I went back to school when I was, while while I was in in juvie and my mindset at that time, because of the situation was I had a warm uh, roof. I had, I had a warm place to sleep, a roof over my head at three square meals a day, and I was going to school for free. 
<laughs> so when I talk about meeting the need of people, those are the kind of things that, that I like to talk about. And so while I was in juvie, from that point, I heard about Job Corps on the radio. And once I got out, they let me out. They found my mother. I took a bike that I had acquired. And I, I found a local Job Corps <laughs> office. For those who aren't watching on YouTube, Greg just did the air quotes with his hand when he said acquired, just so you know. <laughs> yes. And I, uh, I rode the bike down to the job car office through the phone book, which I know kids nowadays couldn't do that. And uh, so I went and filled an application by hand. I had to have it signed by my, one of my parents. So I took it to my mother. She refused to sign it. So I forced her signature and I dropped my application in the mail. So um, about a month later or so, I think it was, I got a one-way ticket on Trailways, which doesn't exist anymore either. I'm telling my age, I don't mm -hmm. care. <laughs> <laughs> I left for Job Corps five days before my 18th birthday. Wow. And so from what I understand, Greg, that then led you to joining the military to be a Navy medical corpsman. Yes, so. sir. Navy. Yes, sir. It's actually a hospital corpsman, you know. Okay. Uh, you know, veterans will forgive you because you know, they understand that you don't know. You know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like that began a change in the direction of your life, it seemed like, just being in the military. So just talk about that. Um, it wasn't easy. You were deployed in some pretty dangerous places, from what I understand. Um, oh, yes, sir. So just talk about that experience. It sounds like that was the beginning of a turning point. It was very much so. It Basically, it was really easy in a sense for me because you had already been out of your own for years. And for lack of better words, no offense to anyone, but you weren't a mama's boy. <laughs> no, you weren't coming from home. And, right. And it, you know, I mean. So, but my first tour overseas was actually in a, a little small country on the West Coast of Africa, uh, founded by expatriated American slaves. Mm. And then their sister country is Senegal which is their British counterpart. So the, the first was, was Liberia? Liberia, yes. Yeah, sir. okay, yeah. And so we were there from August of 1990 until New Year's Day of 1991. And then we actually relieved uh, the Marine Corps anti-terrorist team called, uh, the, the acronym for it is called FAST Company. Hmm. And uh, so I was attached to a, a mechanized infantry unit at the time. Well, I had some really great friends actually to this day. And uh, so it was a very odd situation. One of the things I vividly remember when we were flying in from the ship to the, uh, the helipad at the uh, embassy compound was as we were looking from the doorway of the helo, we saw these CBs, if you know what naval CBs are. They had these huge green camouflage bulldozers and they were pushing lumber on the beach, or so we thought. And it looked like the consistency, I, what I remember, of Raggedy Ann dolls. There we go, telling age again. <laughs> and um, as we got closer, we realized that they weren't Raggedy Ann dolls, they were bodies. And they had ran out of space in the hospitals and the cemeteries and other places that were used for makeshift graves. So they were bearing the people as far in from the beaches they could so they wouldn't be swept out in the sea from the high tide when the high tide came up because the embassy compound was on a cliff face and went straight up. That was my first experience and I was 22, maybe 23 years old at the time. I think I had my 23rd birthday. Yeah, I was 22 years old at the time. Yeah. And I had been in a few years already at that time. So yeah. So that was my, that was my first experience. I mean, seeing that it must make you think, how can this kind of thing happen? What you know, all these questions are probably flooding in your mind. What could lead to such terrific scenes? And I mean, that's probably, you probably saw some really difficult things in your tours of duties of, yes, it probably it, wasn't it, the it last. Does. But, you know, as, as speaking again as a veteran, all those things about politics and your ideas and what you look like and you don't look like and where you're from and all things, they all go out the window. Because it all, it all comes down to that you're looking out for this guy that's beside you and the other guy that's beside you and vice versa. And so everybody just wants to go back home to their own dysfunctional backgrounds and families when it's all said and done. Right. So you're just, you're friends and family. And that's what makes, especially combat veterans, so close. 
it sounds like you found a real sense of camaraderie that in the military. So somewhere along the lines, as we get to sort of Unbreakable Man, it sounds like there was a turning point where you were maybe at a maybe one of the lowest points in your life and you could have gone one direction, but mm. you went towards faith. Let's talk about that pivotal moment where you chose faith, chose God, if you will, and not perhaps an alternative. Well, there are so many moments, <laughs> but I'll go to a funny one. This is after I had actually contemplated suicide at one time. I had just gotten... Now, normally to- someone doesn't say... I'm going to go to a funny one after talking about contemplating suicide. So uh, <laughs> our listeners are dying to hear this story. Well, I'll go back to the first one. I'll get to the suicide portion. I just really got into a very bad point in my life between the PTSD that I had that I didn't even know I had at the time because I just assumed because of the type of people that I came up around in the military, that was our normal. And what I mean by that. It's kind of like, this is the best way I know how to describe it, is when you have, let's say, 100 individuals who came up together in an insane asylum for 10 years, just as an example. For them, that's their normal. So then one day, you unlock the door and you tell those 100, okay, go out and be with the rest of the world. And they're like, but this is our world. And so when they go out with the normal population, you're like, who are all these strange people? And they say, well, we're not the strange ones. You're the strange ones. And that's what it's like in, in my eyes of being a, a combat vet with PTSD. Because once you are discharged, especially a combat vet, there is no turnoff switch. You just don't go back to just being Greg Robinson, the homeless kid who used to be on the street. You now have had training and you've had education and then indoctrination into a, a totally different culture and lifestyle. So whether it be four years or if it's 20 or 30 years, you've still been indoctrinated. And that's much what it was like being around the Marine Corps. Mm. But now, <laughs> pushing forward, moving to the funny story. Now, how I, how I came into salvation was, actually this lady had came to work for me on the job and she was a sanctified woman. And so every now and then she'd talk about God and. You know, and I really didn't want to hear it because I had seen almost everything as far as I was concerned. I had, I had dealt with Hare Krishnas, I had dealt with Jehovah Witnesses, I had dealt with Methodists, I had dealt with Baptists and Muslims and so on and so on. So to me, it was just all one big melting pot in my eyes. And I grew up seeing hypocrites who guys who called themselves preachers and in the mm-hmm. church, you know, and, and they're hanging out at the same bar that I'm at on Saturday night until about one o'clock in the morning because they're going to go home early because they got church in the morning. Mm. And there's one particular day because I just kind of like what I'm doing. I kept people laughing and I was notorious for telling jokes. One particular day I was telling a dirty joke. And so as I was telling my dirty joke, she kept interrupting me. So I got irritated because I couldn't get to my punchline. So I was like, look, just let me get to my punchline. Man. <laughs> Say whatever you want. So I went to go finish again. And she says, when are you coming to church? So I got so irritated that I said, you know, fine, I'll come to church. Let me finish my joke. <laughs> and she looked at me because she knew I was old fashioned. And she says, I got you. <laughs> so now I knew because I gave my word, I had to go to church. <laughs> so I said, well, I know what I'll do. In my mind, I said, I'm going to go to church to fulfill my obligation. And I'm never going to come back. So lo and behold, I go to church, I get convicted. <laughs> I went two other times. And on the third time, I brought my wife with me. I didn't know why I brought her with me. I know now why. And then we went to church and uh, the pastor at the time, he made an altar call. And I vaguely remember going up, but I went up to the altar. He made an altar call the second time. And my wife went up. And our daughter, who is now 19, who will be 20 this year, she was nine months old, sitting in a car seat as the sisters of the church watched over her while my wife and I were getting giving our lives to God. <laughs> that, that's my story in, in a long-winded, kind of shorter version as I can get it, how I came to know and understand God. So, and so from that day, uh, actually, when I got home that evening, I remember I was taking my daughter upstairs to put her in the crib. And... Um, 
Something came over and I told God, I said, you know what, God? I said, I want to make a deal with you. And I said, I tell you what. I said, if you keep my daughter and then allow her to go through the things that I went through as a child and then teach me how to be a father and how to be a husband because I didn't have examples, then I promise you that I will serve you to the day that I die. Well, I've got a great kid. She's in college. She's beautiful. She takes her brains from her mother and has a little bit of her father's attitude. Uh, but she's still here, and I've been in the church. I marked my time in the church by her. So I've been in the church uh, almost 19 years. Wow. So it sounds like that experience changed your whole life, led to Unbreakable Man. I mean, you charted a journey that was different than the one that you grew up with. Your daughter grew up radically different than you did. You know? Oh, yes, sir. I mean, the Bible talks about sin can go to seven generations, which basically means forever. It's just a biblical way of saying forever. Well, I think mm-hmm. sometimes virtue or faith can go to generations. So you've charted a new course without getting too much on the sidetrack. As listeners know, I grew up in a very different background, a very wealthy <laughs> background in Australia, fat, large family business. But it was founded by a man of great faith. He was an elder at his church, a wonderful husband, great father, treated his employees well. He did everything that a man of God, a man of Christ should do. And that faith, it got a little watered down a bit over the generations as money and power crept in and money and power tends to erode faith. But that legacy of faith uh, lasted in some fashion for generations. And so the legacy you're leading I don't know how many generations that would last, two, three, four, five, ten, I don't know. But you'll have kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, great-great-great-grandkids that you'll never meet unless you live to a biblical 175 or something. Who knows? But let's assume it may not happen. You have a legacy that's going to change from what you grew up with. So that's that's something, to, I don't know if the word is to be proud of, at least to be filled with joy about, right? To seeing what will happen with your daughter and yes, generations. I'm, I'm extremely thankful that God gave me an opportunity to be where I'm at. Because uh, I know for a fact that I should have been dead at least a decade ago, if not 20 years ago, from all the things that I went through. But for whatever reason, God had his hand of mercy upon me. And as the scripture says, that God is the father of the fatherless. Mm-hmm. This is a perfect time to bring up, because of what Warwick said about your stories being so different, right? I mean, you laughed when he said that, Greg, when he said, yeah, my, my background is much different than yours. And it's true. And yet your crucibles and the things that you've gone through and, and the impact that that has had on you, we discover this all the time on this show. No, not everyone has grown up with a 150-year-old family media company that they lost in a failed takeover bid to the tune of, as I like to tease Warwick about (laughs) now, $2.25 billion. Nor has everyone who's listening to this show, Greg, gone through what you've gone through. From being on your own at 16, you told me you would take uh, soap out of restaurants so that you could wash yourself, uh, and then your war experiences. But one of the things you said, Greg, that cements how the emotions of your crucible, Warwick's crucible, I'm not giving the details of mine at this moment, but in my crucible, everybody's crucible tends to have certain emotional touch points. Getting beyond them, you said, we ask all guests, uh, what's one bit of advice you would give uh, someone to get beyond your crucible? And this is what you said. And I say this because that's the advice that you follow. That's the advice Warwick followed. And that's the advice that you're encouraging the listeners to follow. And that advice is this. And I love the way you phrase it. Don't let defeat defeat you. What? How can people do that? If, it, if you're counseling, coaching, meeting someone where they're at and they feel defeated, how do you tell them what's the first step they can take? Warwick talks a lot about what's one small step you can take to move towards your goal. What's your advice to how do you not let defeat defeat you? Well, to be frank, I think I'm kind of a hard man in some ways. So my best piece of advice is to be flawed. Mm. Meaning to, and sometimes it's really hard when you're in a bad situation, but you need to be able to take a look in the mirror and say, hey, why am I in this 
situation? What are the things that I could do to improve? What are my resources that I could maybe get for help? Humble yourself and allow yourself to take advice. It doesn't mean all the advice is going to be the best advice. But nonetheless, it's going to be advice and it's going to help you to get to the point to where you need to be if you allow it. Because one of the things that I teach on, you know, you mentioned in my bio about the, I call myself the caretaker of the 12 principles of resolve. And this was something that God had given me over a year ago. Well, not even a year ago now. And it's an acronym based off the word uh, father. Hmm. And the first principle is to be flawed. The second is to be faithful. The third is to be accountable. The fourth is to be authoritative. The fifth is to be honest. The sixth is to be humble. The seventh is to be earnest. The eighth is to be an executor. Oh, I, I forgot my T. Yeah. Uh, T is to be trustworthy. And the second T is to be tenacious. Yep. I'm going to skip down to R because I know I did mm -hmm. the others already. Is to be respectful and to be a rewarder. And it's actually broken down in three tiers, the first four, the second four, and then last four. But the most important, I think, out of all of them is the very first one is to be flawed because you got to recognize your issues idiosyncrasies, whatever word you want to use, to look at yourself first and address those things and then figure out what you need for help. And of course, we, all three of us know as being men of faith, the most important place you can go for help is to go to the king first. Because if you don't go to the king first, then you can't get to God. Amen. I love that phrase that you use. I think elsewhere you mentioned, be flawed and ask for help. I mean, we all have flaws. I mean, you've We've all have our own experiences. You've obviously gone through tough upbringing, PTSD in the military. Mine, you know, you can't compare crucibles. I mean, mine feels like it's trivial compared to what you've gone through. But, you know, losing a 150-year-old family media business that was founded by a person of faith and being a person of faith and my naivety and poor theology, I felt like God had a plan to resurrect the family company in the image of the founder, and I blew God's plan. Obviously, if God had wanted it to happen, it would have happened. But aged my late 20s at about 30, I was just thinking, I was just devastated. So we all have our crucibles, but yeah, I mean, it's so true. We just admit that you're hurting, that it's not easy. Get help from wise folks. So just link that for me. You've, you've mentioned the 12 principles and you have the ministry Unbreakable Man. Tell me about this mission. What is that mission about? What is your, what's your passion? Where do you feel like God is calling you today? What's his mission for you in life, would you say? My mission is to help other men. And that's putting it very simple, very simply. But, you know, when I talk about my job is to equip, enrich, and to empower men to be better versions of themselves according to God's base design and character. Because if you do that, then everything else will fall into place. And what I mean by that, I'll, I'll use another a biblical description, is we all know that God created the man first. And then he created Eve from the rib of the man to be his helpmate. And Adam was the head of his household. He was the high priest. We know that's how things were done at the time. And if Adam had did what God had instructed him to do, and he had to chastise his wife and said, hey, you know what God said. But instead, he allowed his wife to do what all of our wives do to us. And they come up to us and say, honey, please. And they bat their eyes. And maybe they rub you on the back and bring you your favorite meal. And <laughs> And so he was cursed. And so he went along with his wife. And then when God came into the garden, he says, Adam, where are you? And then Adam didn't answer. And he called him again. And he didn't answer. And then finally called him a third time, if I remember right. And he said, where are you? He said, I'm over here. He said, well, come see me. He said, I can't because I'm naked. He said, well, how do you know you're naked? <laughs> so right there, he gave himself away. And then, of course, then... The curse of, anyway, anyway, you know the rest of the story. I don't want to. Sure. Just, just, so how does this link with what you're trying to teach, man? I mean, all of us sin, you know, men and women, we all fall, yes, as scripture yes, says, sir. we all fall short of the glory of God. Well, really, what, what I'm teaching is, when I talk yeah. about the principles and then I tie in with this, this is about teaching men how to be real men, again, according to God's base character and design. 
And for so long, men haven't been taught that. And as society pushes forward, we get further and further and further away from that. Hmm. Where you have women who don't understand their places in the household. I know it's old fashioned, but this is the truth. Hmm. You get men who don't understand their places in the household. I'll give you a good example. You, you gentlemen may or may not have seen it. There's a commercial that comes on TV about Tide. I think it's Tide. And it's these two dads who are washing clothes, a black dad and a white dad, both men. And the kids are playing around them and they're talking about detergent on what gets the clothes cleaner better. And one of the, I think the wives walks out of the house with the briefcase. Now there's nothing wrong with women working, but what I'm saying is that the role that God has designed for men and women is now completely reversed. And the scripture even talks about it. It says how um, in the last days where the, the children shall be your oppressors and the women shall have rule over you. And so because we're out of order, then everything is upside down and it's topsy-turvy. So if the, the husbands learn how to be real husbands, for those who's married, because you know what the world is today, that um, they've totally destroyed the institution of marriage. And it used to be a term of shame. If you came home and you were pregnant and you weren't married, they would send the daughters off someplace with an aunt or an uncle or an old family member someplace in the country. And that's not to say that my situation was any better it wasn't because it wasn't. But the point is, is that I'm on this side now serving God and I know better and I understand. And if we could teach men these things based upon these principles and understanding who they are, you know, what it means to be flawed, what it means to be faithful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then we could get them back on track. And I think a lot of the problems that we have in society would be remedied and it would start from that base foundation. Is there an element of servant leadership in which you're trying to teach men? Because I know the whole role of men and women is a complex subject to discuss in our day and age, but... Now, scripture talks about um, a man should love his husband as Christ loves the church, basically lay his life down. So there's a sense of leadership. The scripture talks about servant leadership, if not, which I know you're not talking about, there's not so much domineering, but more of a servant's heart. You try to teach a man just that, that husbands are meant to have like a servant's heart as they love their wives kind of yes, thing. Yes, yes, the scripture talks about it and it says how, um, that men should love their wives as Christ loves the church. Mm-hmm. So when I speak of leadership, I don't mean the old-fashioned, domineering, beat your mm-hmm. chest, you know, drag the woman by the hair. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about leadership based upon scripture and biblical principles. Mm-hmm. Meaning that the, the, the scripture says that uh, as a man and you live with your wife, you need to understand her. Mm-hmm. So we know that women are emotional. Men are not so emotional. Right. And each one has a specific design by God in their roles. So your job is to teach your wife and your children according to God's ways. But if no one ever teaches you that and you don't understand that, then there's no, no way for you to know. And that's why you have so many men that are so far from the church or so distant in relationships, because now what they have is that they have their mothers trying to raise men when you need a father to raise it. But how can a father learn how to be a man unless his father's in his life? And when I say father, I mean as in marriage. Yeah, and so many young guys that don't have role models of what it means to be a man of God or even a man of character to uh, not abandon families, to be around, to love their kids, not yell and scream, but resolve things yes, sir. peacefully as partners. Uh, so you try and teach young guys what it really means to be a real man, which is not to dominate, it's not to abuse or to hit or strike, but just to love, be a servant leader. Yeah, leadership can take many forms. And often what we think of leadership is not what young folks think of leadership is. It's not like oh, my way or the highway. It's more of a servant leadership loving your wife as God loved us. So that, that's got to be a tall order to try and teach an unbreakable man. That's a real cultural shift. I mean, how do you get this through to, to young guys? Because it's got to be, you, you might, it's like you're speaking a foreign language. I mean, what the heck are you, <laughs> what the heck are you well, saying, Greg? I, mean, I start off you know. with the book mm-hmm. and then you engage him in conversation. Because once they get past what you look like on the outside, meaning like usually like where I work, I'm usually in a, a shirt and a tie and a jacket. Mm-hmm. 
no clean cut. It's just, this is how I am. And then when they start really talking to you and they're like, wow, you do understand. So now you've met them at their level. And so now you can talk to them because you're not a foreigner, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You're not someone who hasn't been in their shoes or worse. And they can tell when they talk to you whether you're sincere or genuine or not. So the authenticity comes out and then I'm able to say, well, hey, you know, this is what you need to do. Wow, I never thought about it like that. Mm-hmm. And then you're able to engage more and more and more. And then what I find is, is that then they just start absorbing like sponges because they never had anyone to sit down, another man, and to tell them these things. Not all kids or not all young men, but a lot of them. And then most young women want to be married. So then when they hear this, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, well, wait a minute before you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's some stuff in here for you too. It's not really for you per se, but. Well, it's like you have a, a daughter, so, uh, right? Oh, yes. So, you know, you're obviously saying, be very careful that the man that you fall in love with, you want to make sure you pick the right one. Yes, sir. And I, um, I take very seriously uh, because like I told you earlier in my story about being a father, I asked God to teach me because I had no idea. Hmm. Because what I did when I got married the first time, and don't laugh at me too hard when I say this, but I took what I saw as a kid, friends who had fathers and such, because of the, and when I was a kid, we were the ones who didn't have fun. We were kind of jealous. You've got a dad. And I don't have a dad to go home to. I can't say, hey, dad, can you throw the ball with me? Can you do this with me? And then between the TV shows and everything else that you saw, like the Huxtables, uh, you know, Father mm-hmm. Knows Best and et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm really telling my there, Father Knows Best. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I just kind of hodgepodge it in my mind and use that as my reference point on what I should do as a husband and as a father. And the majority of the stuff that I did was absolutely wrong because none of it was God-centered. Like I said, when I got married the second time and then I had my daughter and she was a baby still before my second child was born. I told you guys my story, how I asked God to teach me how to be a father and a husband because I was horrible at both and didn't even realize it. And so what God did for me is because I humbled myself and just like the scripture says, the king says, Take my yoke and learn of me. And, you know, when we talk about yoke and kids like, you mean like an egg? No, it's not an egg. (laughs) (laughs) Not that kind of yoke. (laughs) It was an old-fashioned device that they put around a horse or a a beast of burden's neck to control it. Yeah, oxen, that kind of thing. Yes, yes, exactly. So I I took God's yoke and took my time and I learned and God taught me and I listened and I didn't buck too much and rebel. Mm. And, uh, I think God did a fairly decent job with me. So um, I tried to set myself up as a standard for my daughters. So when they grew up or they grew up, they didn't know exactly what to look for. So look, this is how my dad was. My dad was always faithful. He loved my mother greatly. He'd do anything for us. We never had to want for anything, but he was a disciplinarian. He guided us. He taught us right from wrong. So now they know what to choose. They know what to look for because of the, the standard that dad set. And then my standard came from my dad, which is our mutual father, which mm-hmm. is in heaven. Amen. That is an excellent point to do what I normally say, Greg. Normally in the, at this point in the show, I say it's getting about time to land the plane. The captain's turned on that fastened seatbelt <laughs> signs. But in honor of you, as a huge Star Wars fan, I'm going to say we've come to the point in the show when Han Solo is going to bring down the Millennium Falcon. Uh, It's time to land that ship. But before we do, I would be remiss if I did not give you the chance to let our listeners know how they can find out more about you, more about The Unbreakable Man, and more about your book, Bad Bad Bandages, Bullets, and Beyond. How can they find out more about you? Yes, you can find me on Amazon. I'm listed. You can always find a link for the book. My email or my website. Actually, I do my website first. That'd be easier. It's a long one, so you got to pay attention. <laughs> All right. We'll have it in the show notes, too, but go ahead. It's uh, theunbreakableman.live, all one word, okay. dot live. And then okay. my email is greg at theunbreakableman.live. Or you can find me at, on Instagram as well. It's also under the Unbreakable Man. 
And you can find me on Facebook too as well. I'm, I'm not a huge social media fan, but it is what it is. So yeah. Instagram, yeah. Facebook, the website, and then via email, if you want a hard copy of the book, I'll, I'll send you a signed copy. Fantastic. Warwick, the last question is yours. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Greg, for being here. I mean, you have an inspiring story. It was, you've had some tough journeys growing up as well as in the military, but just your ministry, the unbreakable man of, uh, of just really trying to care for young guys, the 12 principles of resolve. Um, it's very inspiring because there's a lot of young guys out there that don't have a role model of what is it to be a real man? It's not like in the movie, some you know tough guy that beats everybody else up. I mean, sure. it, there's a time and a place for you know uh, defense and to protect your family and all. There's a time and a place for that, but you know, being a, a real man is a lot more than just being tough. You know, it doesn't mean that's wrong to be tough, but being compassionate, having a servant's heart, being faithful honoring your family, uh, honoring God. I mean, that's a mission that's, uh, there's not a lot of people doing that. And they need a lot more people in the game, a lot more people in that uh, company of troops, if you will, right? Uh, you need a whole lot more soldiers on that mission, that's trying to that's help it. young guys understand what it is to really be a real man and what it means to be an unbreakable man. So thank you for your ministry. It's, it's a tough mission field, but it's really needed. So thank you. Thank you. That sound that you heard, listeners, is not the plane landing on the ground. It's, it's Chewbacca being excited that the Millennium Falcon <laughs> has landed. Before we go, let me uh, rewind a bit of our conversation and, and, uh, and leave you with some takeaways from this very enlightening, um, moving conversation with uh, Greg Robinson. Number one, and this is so good, don't let defeat defeat you. Um, there's a movie, I can't remember the name of it now, but I, it, this line has stuck with me. There was a movie I love in which this kind of shyster character says after he his get-rich-quick-scheme uh, fails again for like the 18th time, he tells his associate, remember, defeat is always momentary. That's uh, right. When you say that, don't let defeat defeat you, that's what pops into my head. It is not the end of your story if you determine to pick up the pieces and move forward. Greg ran into brick walls at many junctions of his life, but he never let the disappointment, even the devastation of the defeat keep him defeated. He moved beyond his crucibles. He realized he is flawed and found a way to find advice to move beyond that crucible. The second point goes back to you, we, me, everyone. We need to recognize that we are flawed. Embrace those flaws and use them to empower yourself to overcome the most damaging ramifications of these flaws. Be humble enough to take coaching to help you overcome your flaws. Be authentic enough not to hide them. Be brave enough to learn from them. And then the third point takeaway from our conversation with Greg, and this is infused throughout this episode, and that is this, smile. Watch this episode on our YouTube channel. I will include it in the show notes. You'll see how many times, even when describing terrible tragedies, that Greg's face breaks into a smile. Here's the key takeaway there. Finding joy amid the pain is critical to overcoming your crucible. And speaking of overcoming your crucible, uh, listener, thank you for spending your time uh, with us today talking about how we do that, how we move beyond our crucibles. We would ask, uh, Warwick and I would ask, uh, do us a little favor. If you enjoyed this conversation, click like and subscribe on the podcast app on which you're listening to this. You can also, if you want to know where you are on your journey to move beyond your crucible, we heard about Greg's journey and moving beyond his crucibles today. You can discover where you are by going to crucibleleadership.com and taking our life of significance assessment. You can find out exactly what your personality type is as you're navigating your road back, and you can find great next steps for how to do that. So until the next time we're together, please remember this, that your crucibles are painful. They're real. They knock you off your feet, but they are not 
by any stretch of the imagination. They are not the end of your story. I'm smiling right now saying that because Greg smiled so much in this episode. They can be the beginning of a new story, a better story, a more rewarding story. And the reason why it happened for Warwick, it's happened for me, and it definitely happened to Greg Robinson, our guest today. Those lessons that you learn from your crucible can set you up in a new chapter of your story that is so rewarding because at the end of the day, it leads you to where Greg has been led, where Warwick has been led, and that is to a life of significance. 